Today on Sagittarian Matters, we have karaoke, Karen Carpenter, gender, representation, and more with my guest, Karen Tongson. Stay tuned. From New York City, where producer Ponyo and I are staying in the Spirit Airlines of hotels. We're at a hotel in Midtown. We're here for the Queers and Comics Conference. And not only did the hotel want to charge me $30 for the use of a mini fridge, but also a hefty $25 for in-room coffee. Have you ever, ever had the experience of wanting to pay $25 for the quality of coffee that a hotel room coffee maker provides. I have not had that experience. And thus I said, no, thank you. Uh, May I pretend to be refrigerating breast milk so that I can get a refrigerator during my trip? Perhaps. But in the meantime, I am going around getting my own coffee like a normal person. And I need to tell you, you've missed this, but Gregory's Coffee, a coffee chain in New York, was offering free oat milk drinks today. Whatever you wanted as an oat milk drink for free as a way to boost up Califia Farms oat milk. And you know what? It was good. In fact, I went to two different Gregory coffees. And, you know, if I see one on my way to go watch the Drag Race finale tonight, I might get another one. Uh, Speaking of Drag Race... By the time you hear this, the show will have resolved and we will have a winner. But in the meantime, I don't even know who I'm rooting for anymore. Brooklyn's probably going to win. I can't believe that Brooklyn would win. Evie could win. Her personality, her sense of humor, I don't know. Her lip syncing, wonderful. But Silky Ganache, she really lost me last episode. Um, Akiria, I think, deserves to win. And I believe that Vanjie is not in the final four from the leaked image. But if Vanjie could win, you know, kudos. That would be tremendous. So that's my thought about the amazing race. Sorry, not the amazing race. Drag race. Drag race is like my version of sports. The amazing race is my obsession. You can believe that I was over the moon to discover that my guest this week, Professor Karen Tongson, is a huge Amazing Race fan, as am I. I have been re-watching season 17 of The Amazing Race, which came out approximately nine years ago, and I can't wait to move forward uh, with a new friend to talk to the show about. So please enjoy our talk about The Amazing Race towards the very end of this episode. In other news, I want to tell you a couple of good things I ate in New York. One of them is Spicy Moon, which is a vegan Szechuan restaurant. If you're in New York, you must go. Um, It's in Manhattan somewhere. The geography of this place is not my forte. But if you go, the one thing I know you have to get is their wontons in spicy chili oil. That's all I have to say. There's something about how soft the wontons are, um, how doughy they are, and the flavors of the whole thing that will just, they will knock you off your feet. I found out about them from an Instagram account that I follow called Vegan Eats NYC, where this girl does all the heavy lifting for me of listing every place that she likes to eat and what she likes to eat there in all of the boroughs. 
Another thing that I really like when I'm in New York is Little Chalk Apothecary, which is a vegan, gluten-free crepe shop. And that is in, I think it's in Williamsburg. It's around there. You could get sweet. You could get savory. Today I got a pizza crepe. Was there a woman there with some kind of a poodly hybrid puppy that was on a flexi leash? Yes. Is a flexi leash my least favorite dog accoutrement? Yes, yes, yes. I hate a flexi leash. You may have one because you love to give your dog freedom and that is your prerogative and we can still be friends. Personally, though, as someone who has historically had dogs that look friendly and then want to attack other dogs, a dog on a flexi leash to me is just like danger, 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 Will Robinson, danger. Like that dog is so free and out of control of its person that it will just come up on you and then the person will yell from 400 feet away, he's friendly, as my dog's like, ah, ah. So... That's how I feel about flexi leashes, in case you were wondering. That's also how I feel about purebred puppies, which this lady had. And then, of course, everybody was falling all over themselves to be like, it's a puppy. And I was like, I'm not impressed by that. Have you seen my dog? She's blind in one eye. She almost doesn't have any eyes. Her eyes barely were. I, mean, I don't know. I don't know what kind of martyr, martyr cross on Ponyo's behalf I was stapling myself to. But there you have it. Anyway. Um, thank you for listening to the show. I hope you really enjoy my talk with Karen Tongson and we'll see you next week. Bye. Karen Tongson is an author, a podcaster, a scholar, a cultural critic, a food lover, and a karaoke enthusiast. She is the author of the new book, Why Karen Carpenter Matters, and also the book Relocations, Queer Suburban Imaginaries. Karen is an Associate Professor of English, Gender, and Sexuality Studies and American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California. She is also part of the soon-to-be-defunct podcast Pop Rocket on Maximum Fun. You can find Karen at karentongson.org. Now please enjoy my talk with Professor Karen Tongson. First, we should talk about your book, but actually before that, I want to talk to you for one second about karaoke. Of course. You are a karaoke wizard, I would say. You're good at karaoke. You like doing karaoke. Uh, and you do Carpenter's karaoke very well. And we'll talk about your book mm-hmm. in a second. Yeah. But I mean, it's so funny because karaoke became something that I don't know, that I actually didn't invest in until much later in my existence. So I hadn't been doing this my entire life. Uh, It really wasn't until I was in grad school. And even then, I didn't do it that often in the Bay Area because there were only a couple places. And uh, and it was the 90s and not as many people were doing karaoke necessarily. But karaoke has always been something that was sort of ambiently around in my kind of Filipino upbringing. Uh, ubiquitous there are different forms of like kind of jerry-rigged machines and whatnot that people use to sing uh, in different public spaces in the countryside there could be a ramshackle sort of you know basically hut selling food but they'll have a karaoke machine put together in some way and uh, so so I knew it from that kind of cultural ubiquity and experience growing up Filipino, but I didn't really start doing it until I moved back here to Los Angeles, with regularity, until moved back here to Los Angeles in 2004 after grad school. 
What makes a good karaoke choice? I mean, for me, I used to be a KJ. Mm, I don't think yeah. you need to have a marvelous voice to be, quote unquote, good at karaoke. Mm-hmm. I think you need to commit. I think if there's a long, um, if there's a long bridge, instrumental bridge, you, oh, need, yeah. you need to not pretend to be bored or surprised. Yeah. You just need to commit and just deal with the mm-hmm. fact that you're standing up there. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think what makes a good karaoke song choice, I mean, read the room. You know, I think read yourself or read the room or find a way to like make those things resonate with one another, right? Sometimes we go to karaoke because we want to express ourselves and how we want to express ourselves isn't going to be compatible with what everyone else wants from you in that given moment. And sometimes, and most of the time, I think you can afford yourself that expression, even if it changes the party vibe or whatever is happening in that space, public or private room with friends. Uh, but sometimes also it can be a thrill or a pleasure to kind of surf the kind of crowd emotion that's building in a given mm-hmm. space. Be attentive, listen. It is like being being a karaoke singer, let alone a KJ, is just kind of listening for ways to thematically or rhythmically tie together what happened before you and to carry that energy over. So I think these are things, you know, people tend to worry too much about the technicalities of singing, like, oh, that's too high or that's too low. Um, If you don't consider yourself much of a singer anyway, give yourself a chance to, to experiment with a song that you've always wanted to sing, even if it might seem out of your range. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you done scholarly work about karaoke? (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm actually working on a book. I've been working on a book for a while about karaoke called Empty Orchestra. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's really about the relationship between karaoke and the different ways that we think about queer aesthetics, about cultures of copying, about, um, you know, how we live in a kind of post-digital age of the copy and how karaoke in many respects is a way that we can think through our relationships to originality versus, you know, I don't know, performance, a performance that can be inspired by something. Well, this is what I, I thought of this today. For some reason, I was thinking if I was looking at your Karen Carpenter book and it popped into my mind, my friend Chelsea Johnson said before, she was like, she was like, Karyo- gender is like karaoke. It's like mm. you're just copying the idea of this thing. Mm-hmm. That it's like so far removed from the actual beginning point. Mm-hmm. And then I thought I was like, oh, I should talk to Karen about that. And I thought Karen's un- surely written an essay or a book <laughs> about this at some point. Yeah, I mean, and there are several essays out there that exist about my and in in different addressed to different audiences addressed to different audiences about karaoke when I think about karaoke whether or not it's how it functions to build these improvisational communities in different places uh or whether or not I mean one of the things that I write about too the kind of conflicted history of the first karaoke machines originating in the early 1970s both in Japan and the Philippines and why one story is more dominant over another, mm-hmm. um, why the Japanese story of invention is more dominant over the Filipino story of invention. Uh, yeah, so I'm working on this book. It's actually overdue to my publisher. <laughs> but I had to write the Carpenter's book first. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to get back into it and to to explore those things. But one of the things I like to do is to pick out karaoke songs for people who feel like they don't know what to pick. 
and I kind of like if I know you a little bit, I'll yeah. sort of, you know, play this game of divination. Do you have a recommendation for me? Well, I mean, the problem is I've already seen you do a lot of karaoke at this point. Well, even though actually it took such a long time for us to finally be in the same yeah. space yeah. doing that, um, you know, I think that. And, and you have a really wide and eclectic range of things that you perform. So, you know, obviously, like, B-52s is totally in your wheelhouse, you know. But mm-hmm. those are the kinds of things that I would probably pick out for you. Although, I think that you would kill Eternal Flame by the Bengals. Oh, yeah, yeah, I could do that. Yeah, I could see that being something that you could totally... Yeah, thank you. Take home, yeah. I, we have to talk about Karen Carpenter. Oh, yeah. You're named after Karen Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Karen Carpenter and her band, The Carpenters, <laughs> quite popular in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And you have a new book called Why Karen Carpenter Matters. And we're, that's actually the reason for the season. That's why we're here to talk about it. Um, I don't even know where to start. I mean, I'm kind of, I'm interested in the links between, well, you liked The Carpenters a lot. Mm-hmm. And it was very, it was very popular and kind of normalized for you to like The Carpenters. Mm-hmm. In the Philippines, and then you you might you moved here, you immigrated mm-hmm. to Riverside, and then you had this kind of self awareness that it was corny mm-hmm. to like the Carpenters. Can mm-hmm. you talk about that? Sure. I mean, I think that whatever it is, whether it's music, fashion, the way one comports oneself is always challenged when you take yourself out of one geographical context and and find yourself you know, sort of plopped into another. And it's especially acute when you're moving from a different country to the U.S., which sees itself as this kind of harbinger of modernity and what's new and what's like, you know, um, in fashion or of the moment. And so I think that, yeah, like there's a lot that you discover that is out of step mm-hmm. with a kind of the prevailing culture in which you find yourself. And so, so that's part of, you know... That's part of what I discovered about bringing the Carpenters into, or Air Supply was another band, uh, bands who were very popular in Southeast Asia and who had enduring popularity there, but who definitely weren't going to be popular with kids in my age group yeah. uh, in the early 80s, you know. Um, so, and, and it, the thing is, I'm not sure that, I can even say that I liked the Carpenters. They just felt like such such a part of me and my family because I carried this name around since you know I I entered this world, right? So so there again there was just kind of this the Carpenters just had a presence in our lives. I think that's part of what I try to capture in the book is just like what happens when you live with this presence in your life and how do you you negotiate your relationship with that, especially when it's not a family member or flesh and blood person, but like this kind of cultural object or phenomena. Yeah. And, but you also, you were writing a little bit about, you know, the concept of like corniness itself. Yeah. Or the concept, or just like the mockishly old fashioned. That's the definition of what it means to be corny. Which just is the carpenter. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like, they're living in this kind of nostalgic space. And so Mm -hmm. that was kind of one of the cornerstones of your book from my, my Oh yeah, absolutely. It totally is. And it's, you know, and I think that there are ways in which we think of immigrant communities 
lesbian communities as behind the times in many respects or out of step with what is current. There's a wonderful book called Time Binds by Elizabeth Freeman, and she writes about this concept of temporal drag that kind of drags lesbians, like sort of perpetually drags lesbians out of time, out of fashion. Um, and uh, I, I kind of see that coinciding with the experience of being uh, an immigrant, you know, and that you are necess- you're automatically kind of seen as not being up to date, right? And you're kind of stuck in a pastness mm-hmm. uh, until you catch up, right? With the language, with the with the style, with music. So anyway, so that that is and corniness, and and there's a way in which like the carpenters, I think that they very much captured this set of sentiments, this 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 kind of nostalgia for simpler times, and they. You know, in a very tumultuous era and period, uh, they started 50 years ago in 1969. Think about what 1969 represents in the national imaginary, you know, kind of like summer of love, like Woodstock, you know, like, you know, like in the wake of the summer of love and all these different things and counterculture. And there's something about it as Todd Haynes sort of says in Superstar it's just like you know how did this smooth voiced girl right um create this kind of aura of smoothness in essentially a moment that was very rough and tumble and I think that part of that is to look back at yesterday's to think about the music that you know was popular in the 50s um and you know like every shalalala, right? Like, what is that but a reference to the 50s and that simpler time? But no time was ever simpler, as we know. Right. And I think that that makes itself apparent, too, in the kind of melancholic tones of what they do. Because I think that, you know, you can hear in Karen's voice that she realizes that that, that pastness never really was. Yeah. What? Are, how can you... You have already made it, but what are the connections you see between Karen and queerness? Like... You make so many of them in the book, you know, and as a queer person who has always liked the Carpenters and made fun of for it, I was over the moon to be like, look, there's a precedent for this. There's a read. There's a deeper meaning. I mean, was part of it that her performance was was so tight or or so, I don't know, like physically awkward, maybe in a way. I think that there's several reasons and I'll I'll kind of bullet point them in a moment. But I did want to say that one of the kind of amazing things that has happened since I've been touring with the book in the kind of early stages of its rollout is talking to so many LGBT people um, of that generation or younger or whomever who have like such a powerful identification with Karen Carpenter and really wanted that relationship to be validated, kind of what you just expressed. And for me, I think that there are several things. The first is that, um, you know, in the wake of Karen Carpenter's death, we sort of see how she held on to this secret for such a long period of time. And I think that there's a kind of identification with the tragedy of holding on to a secret, of understanding this kind of pressure to, like, keep something that was sort of... Um, true or shameful about oneself, hidden from view, and to try to perform in a way that, you know, made people feel like you were okay. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one aspect of it. The other um, that I've talked about before is that the music itself is so much about unrequited love and longing. And I think 
as I don't know if it's different generationally now, but certainly when I was a young queer person uh, growing up in the 80s, uh, I wondered to myself, and, and I couldn't even kind of really fathom my own queerness at the time, but I was very much drawn to this idea that, well, maybe no one will love me or maybe no one will return the love that I have to give in, in, in the world because of the ways in which, you know, queerness has been pathologized and all of that. So, so that sort of torch song aspect of it is also a point of identification for queer people. Mm-hmm. And finally, I think that um, one of the things that I actively argue in the book in the Queer Horizon chapter is to think about Karen's relationship to her anorexia, not necessarily as a kind of fear of, you know, being fat or overweight in any way, but actually may have had something to do with a, a gender dysphoria that she herself experienced as the kind of object of consumption of the gays, uh, you know, G-A-Z-E, not G-A-Y-S, but like people, you know, consuming her with their eyes and peering at her. And there was some part of her that wanted to shrink um, back away from being front and center as the lead singer and return back to behind the drums where she started and where she had something to do with her body, you know. And so, I mean, I think that in a way I kind of overstate that, but there's something really resonant there for me and I think for other people who've given me feedback about it about that thesis I had never heard that before I had never Mm -hmm. really thought about that before I'm just Mm -hmm. gonna read I'm just gonna read a couple sentences from there um let's see do 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 a brief item or maybe I should have you read it (laughs) well you read it or should I is it more fun for you to have me read it Read it. Should I read it in an yeah, accent? Okay. A brief item in the British Journal of Medicine from 1978, contemporaneous with the height of Karen's own struggle with the disease, considers the question, anorexia nervosa, fear of fatness or femininity? The item does not, as the title suggests, make a definitive choice between the two fears, but instead describes two expressions of the disease that are motivated to either shrink the breasts and hips, fear of femininity, or reduce one's torso and waist, fear of fatness. We will never truly unearth the root causes of Karen's struggle with anorexia. The pains and pathologies are undoubtedly multiple and contorted, but the possibility that she wished, in some way, to unsex her own body and thus shelter it from scrutiny remains plausible given everything we know about her early life and how often she chafed against gender constraints. I mean, I could keep going. But... Yeah. Well, I mean, that's yeah. sort of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, yeah. And, and like the thing that I go into and... And that, you know, certainly some of her many other biographers have written about is that she was a tomboy when she was growing up. She liked to roughhouse. She didn't like girly things or dolls and like to, you know, get scraped up doing really physical things. So uh, and that she both she and her brother actually, you know, had different relationships to their, you know, to normative gender roles. What was her brother's deal? Well, I mean, he was a he was a piano player. He was a feed. He was a musician, and like he, he he sings about it in the song "Piano Picker," where like basically all the other boys are playing football, but I was sitting there playing the piano, you know. Mm-hmm. And they were all dating girls, but I was picking at the piano, you know. And that's that's it's just available right there yeah. on the surface <laughs> to read in the music. So, um, and I think you know, obviously they were poking fun at it, but 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 I think it does speak to some kind of greater truth about how they maybe you know, didn't see themselves conforming to the way, especially when they were kids in the, like, you know, uh, late 50s, early 60s or whatever, uh, to the way boys and girls were supposed to act. Yeah, and this this book weaves in your own journey. 
mm. and your own life and your own gender. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's the other thing about the book, too. And sometimes I forget to mention, like, it's so weird. Like, I, I always try to lead with that because, you know, it isn't just a musical biography, but it is, you know, a tale of two Karens. Uh, I have to thank uh, Justin Vivian Bond for using that phrase. And I steal it and use it all the time when I talk about it. Uh, because it is our stories, Karen Carpenter's and my own weaving together, weaving in and out of each other's stories and the kind of strange resonances that you can find between two people who seem so radically different and who come from such radically different places, but whose stories and, you know, I don't know, whose story struggles intersect in kind of strange ways across time yeah. um, and through the music. Today's episode is brought to you by Erica Rumbly, Elizabeth Storms, Tony Pinto, Shoshana Ruth Wechter, Michelle Lemoyne, Christy Herod, Mary Pinson, and Jill Soloway. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, especially producer Chris Sutton, who does this out of the kindness of his heart, please send $5, $5 million, that's your business, via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. That's hornet like the insect, leg like its appendage at gmail. Thank you very much, and we look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Bruno Soprano looks forward to it, too! Don't be scared. That's just Pano's voice. You also have a very, very musical family. Yeah, I mean, that's another thing, too. Uh, my mom's a singer as well, right? So that was that's another thing that my mom herself identified in her own way with Karen and then like kind of passed that on to me in my name. But yes, I was on tour with my folks for a few years. I went to the first grade in Hawaii because uh, that was the first place my mom and I moved in the US, to the U.S. Uh, that's where my stepfather lived and, and they got married there. So I went to the first grade and I started the second grade there. We decided to go back to the Philippines and uh, for different professional reasons, my mom and dad thought it would be better to, you know, uh, do music there because of the family name and we went back there and I managed to squeeze in another semester of the second grade mm -hmm. traumatized because I failed my own native language after having been gone for two years oh no yeah because uh, I never learned how to do it formally at all I could only speak it mm -hmm. and the formal Tagalog is much harder uh, even at that age but then then we started traveling again then we were on the road so then I didn't go to school again for until like we got here to the U.S. and then I basically entered the fifth grade. Oh, wow. So there's the long gap. And everything else, you know, I learned uh, through experience. And some correspondence courses, but oh. not really very studiously uh, taken. I was gone most of third and fourth grade. Yeah. Maybe maybe starting in second. I, rem I just, I don't know how much, but I know I found a note at some point from a teacher that said, Nicole has been absent 40 times this year and 40 was underlined and it was like a note admonishing my mother and I remember finding it being like, uh-oh. But looking back as an adult, especially an adult that teaches kids, I'm like, holy shit. Wow. I was like, that's like in fourth grade. Like, Well, what was what were the circumstances, if you don't mind me asking? Of you? I just didn't want to go to school. Oh. I mean, I, I had like stomach issues, so sometimes mm -hmm. it was legitimate. Like I was like, I can't walk or like mm -hmm. it was just like I had actual stomach issues, but sometimes I just... 
didn't want to go to school. And so I was just fake sick. And my mom was like, all right. Yeah, that's good that your mom was accommodating. And I think, like, I mean, I don't know. It, it seems to not have hurt. Maybe it helped to not be stuck in the kind of formalized educational process because, yeah. you know, you get to acquire different knowledges. But I still read voraciously, you know. Oh, same. And Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, I think that there are ways that you can do that. I mean, that's probably why I'm pretty shitty at math and stuff like that. <laughs> I mean, I can do arithmetic, but, like, my aptitude for STEM fields is, is not particularly high, I would say. When I would go back to school and there were so many things I didn't understand and so many things I had missed, I could get extra credit by doing... Um, reading comprehension worksheets and I just remember I would just as many reading comprehension worksheets as you could give me I would do them and that's how I got through that Mm -hmm. that's how I got like a to pass whatever grade and in gym class because I was always I always had like an ace bandage on some part of my body on so I looked like I couldn't do gym Uh now I forged notes to be like Nikki's you know so injured she has a, a ankle brace they would have me write abstracts of articles from like Shape magazine or whatever, like <laughs> fitnessy kind of weight lossy or fitnessy Ooh. magazines. Mm-hmm. And so I would just sit in the corner and write an abstract of that. That's so funny. I mean, I was a little, I was a bit of a jock, so I didn't mind. Like that was one of the places that I felt at home when I started to go to school, like here in the, the States. I was just like, I loved recess because I could go like play soccer with the boys on the field or whatever. It was only like the kind of cruel, like initiation into like normative gender stuff that, that where I was like, oh shit, I, this isn't cool for me to just show up like with my hair uncombed and, you know, just with another polo shirt and just like soccer shorts just to play with the boys because people are starting to step to me about it. Oh you God. Know? Yeah. Like boys or girls? Both. Both, you know. Um, yeah, like dudes who were bullies just like, and who didn't like that a girl was playing sports with them aggressively, you know, would, would come after me and then the girls would be like, what's wrong with you or whatever. And, and you know, gradually that seeped in and, and I began to sort of, I don't know, perform an aversion to my own physicality and to my own like sportiness uh, at, at different points. And by the time middle school hits, you know, mm-hmm. and then there are periods and stuff like that. Right. Too. So then you're like, kind of don't oh feel like God. it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And then you grow boobs. Yeah, yeah. And then you're like, what is this betrayal? Yeah. What's happening? <laughs> yeah, so it was, you know. But um, but yeah, I enjoyed my my the sporty stuff and for a while. And then by the time I got to high school, then I was just in band, and that counts for PE. Oh, really? Yeah. So that, like, covers your PE, like, because oh. it's your marching band, and you're outside, like, oh. stomping around. And, and it was, like, hard, because it, like would get cold or super, super hot and, you know, and... Well, you know, Karen Carpenter joined the band to get out of her P.E. requirement. Oh, really? Yeah. So even though she, too, was a tomboy when she was growing up and loved playing sports and things like that, like, by the time um, she got to, I guess, high school, it was just, like, she sort of covered her P.E. requirement and joined the marching band. That's where she learned how to play the drums. Oh, my God. Mm. See? Stories intersecting. I see. Wait. I want to really briefly touch on one more queer thing about her, which is that she and um, Cass Elliot are mm. often paired in queer lands. And, yeah. um, and you write about this, and I've heard you talk about this, but I don't know if you could talk about it here. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, they both died at the age of 32 from heart failure. 
uh, and, you know, both had really remarkable, supposedly one-of-a-kind voices. And I think that, and, and for very obvious reasons and kind of camp reasons, the two are paired because, you know, of like, uh, and because Karen, you know, is so thin and yeah. died of anorexia and, and Cass was rumored to have choked uh, on a ham sandwich, which was which is totally false, which is right. a very terrible, cruel rumor. And there were always jokes about someone should have given, you know, Karen the sandwich the cast choked on or whatever. Yeah. But you know, amidst all of that kind of severity and cruelty, I think that again, both of them share that sort of similar torchy uh, torch song tradition. Uh, cast was often singing about unrequited love, but also it's like they're kind of almost two sides of a similar coin, right? Or the same coin where you have Cass and her kind of big booming voice and Karen and her rich, soft voice mediated by microphones. And there's a way in which I think that like for queer people, you can kind of choose your way into and through what they both represent, uh, you know, and, and how they both touch upon those things that I talked about earlier so that's part of why they're paired and they they kind of coexisted for a period of time in the 70s as well right so um and the the music that they sing sang was accessible to a lot of different people so wider audiences than you might expect do you believe the story that cass elliott got hit on the head with something and then her um her voice changed and she was able to sing more octaves did you ever hear that? Yeah, I mean, you know, because it's so funny. I read Michelle Phillips's uh, like tell-all autobiography back in the eighties or something when I was growing up, and like, I remember I was just riveted, riveted, like, and all of the kind of scintillating like stories about sex and desire and like oh. Cass longing for Denny and all of the drama of like the mamas and the papas. Um, and so I vaguely remember that, but I don't know. I don't know if that's true. And I don't think that that's possible. Is that how voices work? <laughs> oh, exactly. Right. That's how voices work. Who knows though? I mean, now I suppose some neuroscientist is going to tell us that that totally happened, but I really like that you were talking about soft rock as strength mm. and the idea of soft rock, um, encompassing so much more yeah. than what we normally attribute to yeah. it. It's not a, the line is it's soft rock is not a vulnerability, but a strength and the strength to be out of time to like, you know, sort of allow yourself to stand outside of time and what is okay and au courant and those things. And that strength that, that, you know, like there's so many, I speak in particular there about Filipinos and Filipino Americans that our attachment to soft rock in many ways is like a kind of stubbornness, uh, a kind of inassimilable stubbornness um and and there's something beautiful in that and and just loving the thing that um that you're not supposed to because whatever it's corny or because it like marks you as a subject who's out of time yeah Mm -hmm. beautifully said thank you um you and i have a fantasy pet project (laughs) called jiminy cricket oh yes we do jiminy cricket is basically uh, it's people who are marginalized giving advice to other people about their projects, mm-hmm. specifically kind of public-facing projects like mm-hmm. movies, TV, books, mm-hmm. whatever, um, but charging money for it. Yeah, mainstream media projects. I think that one of the things that tends to happen, especially as you know, you're a cultural producer, we're cultural producers, and you know, and we both teach, right? So. I think that there is this sense that 
one's intellectual labor is always going to be available for free to to everybody and 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 as, and as much as I'm I don't you know I don't want to sound like a terrible capitalist. I don't think it's a terrible capitalist thing to do, but it is a way of kind of acknowledging that when you pick someone's brain, which is always the phrase that people like to use, like, I really need to pick your brain about this or whatever. Um, it That is essentially at some point asking for their free labor, especially if what they do is teach, you know, uh, Feminism, gender sexuality studies, critical race studies, that kind of thing. It's the kind of, you know, I suppose it's sort of like you wouldn't drive up to your mechanic and say, can I pick your brain about why my brakes don't work? He's going to charge you something. Also, I want to say the people that are asking to pick your brain are generally not doing it for... Of, to further some form of volunteerism. They're generally going to be making money off something, and yeah. so they want to pick your brain so they can make more money. Exactly. I would. That's it, too. So, like, when, when you're talking about the culture industry, right, the culture industry is going to take what you say, run it through the mill, and, you know, and, yeah, exponentially profit from your expertise often. And, and this happens way too often to a lot of, you know, QPOC uh, and, you know, uh, QT, QTPOC. And so I think that it's important to to recognize that to serve as one's conscience, to serve as the culture industry's conscience, the culture, culture industry under, has to understand the value of that in a real and material way. Yeah. And so we're saying, pay us. Go. Pay us. Yeah, exactly. Like if you want... If you uh, want to touch base with Nicole or myself about any of these things, um, if you want us to look at your scripts to see if you're being fucked up, um, it's not the same as a sensitivity reader, really. But it is somebody who's like, I think it's different than saying, oh, that's not going to be well received or that's this isn't politically correct or whatever. It is actually taking the time to be like, there's something amiss with this and here's why and here's another way that you can think about it so it's presenting different angles it's story work it's you know workshopping right so it's not just like yes no wow you know um and it is like basically mini education every time every time yeah yeah so anyway reach out to us reach out exactly jiminy cricket we're here to help we're right her we're we're I don't, I don't want to say we're like, we are elevated sensitivity readers. Exactly like you were saying. Yeah. Like we I could mean, add, to, it's like we're punching it up, but in a way that yeah. is in line with good politics yeah. right now. It is, be, yeah, it's beyond just saying whether or not like you're going to get in trouble for that. It's yeah. going to be about the whys and and how to change that. Like, like yeah. why one would get in trouble, why that's a bad thing and why, uh, excuse me, and how you might be able to transform that and still like convey the point that you wanted to convey without like being fucked up about it. I want to say this is kind of related on Twitter a few weeks ago, you know, a a straight white guy that I worked with at a cartooning college tweeted something. He was like, my students are so afraid now to write about I'm inflection is mine. (laughs) My students are so afraid to write about anyone who's different than them you know, is it actually is it better for people to just not be represented at all than to be represented imperfectly? And I was and I wrote and I said, I just was like, well, I think that it's probably appropriate for your students to take a pause 
uh, before they depict people that are marginalized and use other people's bodies for their work. And then after they take that pause, they can do the due diligence of getting to know multiple people like whatever the you know kind of person they want to do is and um, talk to them, make their work, let those people see a draft and actually listen to them, yeah. even if it interferes with the story they were trying to tell. Mm-hmm. So that's I feel like that kind of advice comes up all the time, just as a general thing. Yeah. I mean, simply put, do the work, do the research. Sure, I write about Karen Carpenter in my book in ways that extend her story beyond maybe the kind of like the strict factuality of what existed in her biography. But I also did the work. I read everything about her. I found out everything about her life. I conducted interviews. I did all these other things before I even began to kind of take off from that starting point and, you know, like create my own worlds out of that story. Yeah. It's the same thing. You know, like if I can do that with a long dead white female singer who was popular in the 1970s, you can do you can consult a living breathing uh, or and you can learn about not only like use the kind of i guess emotional labor of somebody be like tell me about what it's like to be brown that's not what i'm saying to do but i think that you could take the time to learn about different cultures and communities and to read some material uh to you know do more than work from just your immediate assumptions and also i forgot i told him this too it was like Ask yourself, why is this person in your story? Yeah. What are you trying to use them as shorthand for something? Yeah. What do you want them to represent? Mm-hmm. What is the purpose for them being in there? And if your motives are kind of based in, yeah, I don't know, if your motives are, are based in stereotypes that you have yeah. around those people and what they represent just by being on your page, because this is comics. Yeah. So you have a splash page. And everyone's white except for one person. Yeah. Like, what is that person there for? Yeah, exactly. Don't be driven by the story. Like, yeah, interrogate the perp- their, their function in the story. Inter- interrogate their function in the visual sphere, whatever it is. And it's, you know, yeah. That's the thing is, like, there's a difference between representation and tokenism. And I think that people don't really get the the kind of fine line between those things. Where would you draw the line? I do think that it's when, you know, representation suggests that there's been kind of some like deep sort of research or encounter, you know, like engagement uh, and perhaps even losing oneself in the representation of what you are representing Mm -hmm. versus, you know, kind of using tokenism to me is just a form of like manufacturing an alibi for doing the thing that you're going to do anyway without you know, transforming or reorienting your point of view to account for these other points of view. I think that's well said. Hello, listeners. I hope you've been enjoying my conversation with Karen Tongson. Listen, Karen and I are about to go pretty deep on a reality show that we are both fascinated with. That show is called The Amazing Race. I wanted to give you the opportunity to know ahead of time so you can bail out if you have zero interest in that television show. In case you don't know, The Amazing Race is a show where teams of two with some relationship to each other race around the world for a million dollars. Along the way, they take flights, cabs, tuk-tuks, they swim, they take ferries, they take dog sleds, they do tasks everywhere they go, and um, they get a lot of prizes that are sponsored by Travelocity. I have been obsessed with the show for 
at least a decade. I think it's been on for about 500 years. And towards the end of our interview, Karen and I really go hog wild. So I'm giving you the chance now if you need to turn the station. Fair warning, we are about to go pretty deep on reality show The Amazing Race. And the fun starts right now. Karen, you love The Amazing Race. Well, I sure do. It just, it's a happenstance that, like, you you arrived this evening after I just satisfyingly watched an episode of a season that I miraculously hadn't seen yet. And then, lo and behold, you know, I heard that you have your own storied history with The Amazing Race. I have a very long, psychotic one, because obsessive for sure, History with the Amazing Race. Have I made at least five audition tapes? Yes. <laughs> Have I auditioned in per- in person after standing in line outside of a sporting goods store in Portland, Oregon? Oh, wow. Yes. Did I almost get on the show? I did, but my partner bailed. I have the producer. I have his phone number still in my phone. Wow. I've saved his text. It was four or five years ago. Wow. I've saved his I voicemail. So much shit disappears. I saved his voicemail. I've gotten like two different phones since then. And I what? still have this voicemail from him being like, I hope you and so-and-so are still dating because we want you guys to be on the amazing race. Oh, like we want to fly you to LA from wherever you live and put you up in a hotel and have you come for finals week and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, Oh my God, my life's dream. And then at the last minute, my partner bailed and I, I was losing my mind because he was kind of keeping me on the line. He was like, maybe I can do it. I don't know, maybe. And so it was so devastating. It was almost like I had control over the situation, but ultimately I didn't. But that kind of illusion of control kept me being like, if we do this and this and this, will you be on the show? What if I beg? What if I tell you that it's more important to me than like ever getting married or having another (laughs) book or having kids or anything? Like this is the thing I want instead of those things. I love it. I love that you feel that way about the show. I mean, you know that I myself have proposed to multiple people in my life um, since I was in my 20s, uh, whenever the show started, like I'm just like, and now I'm 45, right? So, you know, that's a long ass time, basically. Um... I was like, you know, maybe you, we should do the Amazing Race together. And every partner I've ever had in that span of time is like, <laughs> hell no. No way would I do that with you. I, mean, I think they must have known something. But then a couple of times I sort of ensnared friends to like maybe do it. I got as far as filling out the application once. And I mean, I'm wondering, so like, I'm wondering what it is about you that's so drawn to it. Because, I mean, I could go on and on about yeah. like my own relationship to the Amazing Race, but, but like... What makes you so tapped in? I don't, I mean, I don't know. It's the million dollars, sure. Do I think I'm going to get to the very end? Not yeah, necessarily. Yeah. I think it seems it's like, like not about the money for me. No, you know? it seems like an interesting way to see the world. I don't, there's something about the places they go, the things they do. I also, you know, I love attention, like the kind of the TV, the reality TV element. I'm like wonderful. Sarah Shapiro, our friend, yeah. tried to psych me out before by telling me how terrible it is to be on reality TV. And everything she said just amped me up more. <laughs> she was like, you have to be crazy to go on these shows. They're going to starve you. They're going to sleep deprive you. They're going to ask you all these questions. I was like, wonderful. I want to see the world in this particularly weird and frantic way that then there's an end result that has something to do with art. And I don't know, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a weird thing, but it's just like the things like when they're doing weird tasks, like installing a satellite dish on someone's house, yeah. 
like in a village rapidly assembling some piece of ikea furniture in sweden yeah like i would never do those things even Mm -hmm. if i I mean, I don't know what kind of tour guide I would ever have to pay or have to experience some of the things that they experience. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is that for me, it just activates all of my deep, profound organizational like hubris. Because in my mind, I'm like, I would know how to get that flight, like the best flight there. I would know how to navigate my way around this particular town or any German speaking country. I speak the language, you know, like I like it's a lot like I do. I travel as much as I can, uh, you know, and like work has enabled me to do that for a while, even when it meant, you know, doing it in a very shoestring way. And I am a very like organized traveler and I can. But I'm also good at improvising. Like, I'm, you know, I've had to switch things up at different points in time, you know, because like someone tried to touch my boob at a hostel or whatever. I'm like, yeah. I need to like, you know, get to yeah, a better yeah. place. So, um, yeah. Uh, so for me, it's just like, I want to own this show with my Virgo prowess. And we're going to like get to the top of that mountain and I'm going to eat all of that goat's head or whatever. <laughs> you know, I also think that yeah, I, and it's it's less about necessarily seeing these other places. The thing that I can't do really is I like kind of bungee jump, jump no. off of like a Malaysian, you know, skyscraper or whatever, no. like that kind of shit. I'm like, oh, my partner's going to need to do that. But sometimes both people need to do it. And I'm just no. like, shit, I don't know. And they don't let you throw your partner off the bridge or out of the airplane. Like they have yeah. rules against you. You know, like we can make a pact. You could be like, okay, yeah. I don't want to jump out of the, you know, if, if I don't want to jump out of the airplane, just shove me. I think there's rules against yeah. you actually being able to do that. Yeah. I mean, I think I also, it's my competitive nature. Yeah. That's, you know? That too. It's sort of like, it's a way of testing my competitive nature in a situation where, I guess like the actual intellectual stakes aren't super high, but they they could still be gratifying. You're like, I could win the Kafka telephone challenge in the Czech Republic or whatever. Um, but yeah. But there's nothing I like about it, which is that some of it is up to chance. Yeah. So I don't have to watch the show and think, oh, I have to be the strongest, smartest mm-hmm. team to win. I can be like... I can be like sneaky and pushy and clever and whatever and get kind of far. But also it just matters what taxi I have that day. And also how nice I am to the people around me, Mm. my partner, probably the production crew and all the locals that you come into contact with, including your taxi driver. The more of an asshole you are on the show, the more impediments you end up having. For sure. The social game. Like people always talk about like how the social game on Survivor, but I actually think that there's something way more challenging about the social game on The Amazing Race because it is so fly by night, because it is across like linguistic and cultural barriers, because you know, um, you're also like trying to do everything quickly, right? Mm-hmm. And not just, you don't have this time to build relationships. So so again, I think it taps into that hubristic part of me who thinks like I would kill at this social game. Although I think that in the end, my competitiveness would probably like, uh, after a lot of sleep deprivation and travel uh, would, would make itself apparent. It would crack through this little veneer that I'd, Here's my biggest challenge with making tapes for The Amazing Race is you have to show 
as much of your personality as you can, both good and bad, in the span of a three-minute tape. And you have to kind of show them both the dynamic between you and your partner, what things would irk you, what it looks like when you're supporting each other, and what the stakes are. So, you know, like friends, like, you you know, if you're on it with a friend, it has to be that you look exactly the same or you have the same job or, you know, one of you has cancer or something. It can't just be like, we know each other. If it doesn't work out, I guess we won't be friends. I don't know. It has to be like... We had the same job, or like we're both cheerleaders, or yeah, <laughs> we look yeah. like twins, or we're both blonde, or or, or we we've just reconciled after having a friend breakup, or whatever, yeah. or like you know these sorts of things. Or has I mean like they love they love like a heteronormative couple where they're like we're dating now, but if the race goes well, I'm gonna pop the question yeah. at the finish line. There's always some fucked up couple like that, and it always <laughs> goes so badly. I mean, and even like the gays, like that they have like. Um, there was there was a gay couple I really can't tell like Chip and Riken they might have even won the Amazing Race I can't remember it was so long ago and they ended up being media personalities for a second but like I can't tell the difference between the two of those dudes you know oh, yeah. they're like just like you know like those kind of fascistically handsome gays mm-hmm. you know there's never been good lesbians on the show oh yeah it's true that's the thing I mean that's why I'm just like. That's why I feel like, you know, there could be a niche for that. But now, like, again, it's just like, my hip, ah, yeah. I don't know if I can do it. Although there are people much older than me who've done just fine. I think about it sometimes when I'm working out at the gym, and sometimes it motivates me to be like, well, if I were on The Amazing Race, I'd better kick up the, the kind of uh, the, the incline on this so that I could get to the top of that hill. I do the same thing. <laughs> oh, God. Are we going to have, like, some midlife crisis Amazing Race audition? I guess. Maybe we, maybe. we, need, we need stakes. We yeah. can, if we can think of a you know if we win we we're gonna start a patreon for that that's a good idea yeah maybe like so, so it's like send us to the amazing race like pay for our training and shit like that oh my god our train just like us running up hills with backpacks yeah exactly running up oh, hills with backpacks karen phil's right at the top of this trail <laughs> go go i see phil <laughs> I know but i used to when i started going to zumba classes a while ago um in portland I would go to Zumba and I wasn't quite getting it. I was doing the kind of like bad at gym class kid thing. And then I was like, you know what? If you were on The Amazing Race and there was a million dollars in line, you would fucking get all these dance moves. (laughs) You wouldn't be, you know, dicking around like this. You would get it. And I just told myself that and I played that trick and then I got it. And then, I mean, who knows what it looked like to outsiders, but to me, I was one of the best people in my Zuma class. (laughs) Well, you know, but that's the thing is all you need is that like punch of motivation. I think that maybe that's... It's so funny that both of us use the amazing race as motivation. <laughs> but this is, we've really gone off the deep end here. This is amazing. I mean, like, I really actually didn't even know any of this about you until tonight. No. And this is just like perfect, perfect that, you know, the universe is telling us something. Karen, thank you for being on the show. Oh, I'm so thrilled to finally get to do it. And I'm very excited. I've enjoyed listening to so many different people on your show. And so, you know. Uh, it's nice to finally be one of them. Oh, my God, yes. Please come back again. For sure. All right. Uh, people, you can find Why Karen Carpenter Matters. Wherever any, books are sold. Wherever books are sold. And you might even be able to find Karen Thompson. Wherever books are sold. It feels like it. If you do a little Googling, yeah, you may you'll, find you'll find me. Thanks, Karen. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.